I should apologize. I don't have any jokes about the Super Bowl. <laughs> Sorry. But what I do, I do have our text for this morning. Please turn to the book of Galatians. Lose the red tie, huh? That's not why I wore it. Just matches the outfit, okay? I don't have a green tie. You know what? I, I think we need some prayer to get our focus. Let's pray. Father, um, all of us come with these past weeks, and you know what we've gone through and what people have gone through in situations, circumstances. We know that there's something later on today. And I pray that your spirit interprets your word. I pray that truth, and we set aside these things, can speak out to our minds and our hearts. Because you've got some important things to tell us. Thank you, Lord. We are blessed that we can come here and bow before an audience of one. And with that, we are so privileged. And we pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. And everyone said, amen. amen. Galatians chapter 3, verses 23 through 29. For those that are visiting online or in person, we've been going through the book of Galatians, and this is where we're at. You know, it's interesting when you look at our culture, families have always been in focus. Opinions, ideas, strategies. There's a question today of who has ultimate authority. Is it the parents? Is it the kids? Schools? Medical professionals? But we're living in a day where there's a systematic redefinition and destruction of what we call a two-parent family. New York Times, listen to the title of the article. The Myth of the Two-Parent Home. And they state that new research indicates that access to resources more than family structure matters to a kid's success. Now, I'm curious, number one, how they define success. And number two, how they define family structure. Now, we also know just because two people come together and have a child, as a result, does not mean that they parent well. But we are seeing this massive shift away from two-parent homes, mom and dad, as fundamental to the health of a child. And there's so-called new experts in their fields declaring this new revelation is healthy. Now, in light of that, that sounds rather depressing. This has been making the rounds on the internet. I'm going to read this. And maybe you saw it, but I, I think it's quite encouraging. It'll be on the screen as well. But just let me read it to you. It says, don't feel sorry for or fear your kids and grandkids because the world they are growing up in is not what it used to be. God created them and called them for the exact moment in time that they are in. Their life wasn't a coincidence or an accident. So raise them up to know the power they have in children as God. Train them up in the authority of his word. Teach them to walk in faith, knowing that God is in control. Empower them to know they can change the world. Don't teach them to be fearful and disheartened by the state of the world, but hopefully they can do something about it. Every person in all of history has been placed in the time that they were in because of God's sovereign plan. He knew Daniel could handle the lion's den. He knew David could handle Goliath. 
He knew Esther could handle Haman. He knew Peter could handle persecution. He knows that your child can handle whatever challenge they face in their life. He created them specifically for it. So don't be scared for your children, but be honored that God, that God chose you to be parent, to parent the generation that's facing the biggest challenges of our lifetime. Raise up to the challenge. Raise Daniels and Davids and Esthers and Peters. God isn't scratching his head wondering what he's going to do with themes of the world. He has an army he's raising up to drive back the darkness and make him known all over the earth. Don't let your fear steal the greatness of God placed on them. I know it's hard to imagine them as anything but our sweet little babies, but we just want to protect them from anything that could ever be hard on them. But they were born for such a time as this. Isn't that amazing? Now, we're going to talk about this because this morning, we're going to be looking at what it means to be sons of God, his children. So let's read Galatians chapter 3, beginning at verse 23. Now, before, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ, and there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no man or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. This is God's word. I want to key in that phrase that you are all sons of God. I really don't believe that we grasp the significance of this. Now, I know some of you are probably sitting there saying, well, why does he say daughters too? I mean, this is so sexist. Don't go down that road. We're going to get in that moment. I mean, so often our cultural bias infects scripture and we miss truth. Now later, and again, he's talking about sons here. Okay. Later he says, there is no race. Jew or Gentile. There is no gender, male or female. There is no social status, slave or free. When it comes to being sons, there's level playing field. It is for everyone. But remember the culture of the audience he's speaking to. Sons. I'm not saying this is right or wrong. It's just a fact in this culture. And remember, he's trying to make a point. In the culture which Paul is writing to, the son gets it all. He has the rights. He has the privileges. He has everything. And so Paul says that in Christ Jesus, if we get the gospel right, if we understand Abram's promise, then we have the status of being sons of God. Isn't that incredible? Now, we all have to realize, too, that we have the experience of being a son later in the message. We're going to talk about that because there's another passage that speaks to that. But how often do we not act like the son? We know it. We claim it. We say it's all good. But we live other than a son should live. Understand, the enemy does not want you to believe this. He doesn't want you to believe that you are a son, that you have full rights, that you have full privileges, that you have, you're an heir to absolutely everything that God has. 
Now we're going to look at a, another passage in a moment because Paul is quite repetitive talking about this. But just let me lay this out. I, I saw this past week. Tim Keller posted this on an online. And he talked about the eight privileges of being a son. Here they are. I'll just quickly go down through. He says, security. There is no fear of losing our relationship. I mean, think about that. God will never disown us. I was talking to someone this past week, and they're just struggling with the assurance of their relationship with Christ. That is a lie of Satan. Satan would have you to be insecure and not secure. So if we understand what it means to be a son, we have security. Two, we have authority. We have authority over sin. We have authority to live. It's the freedom from the power of sin. It's the freedom to live and do good. And that's incredible purpose and mission, isn't it? We have intimacy. Later, you're going to see that we get the privilege of calling him daddy, Abba, father. Assurance. And again, we'll see this in the other passage. His spirit speaks to our spirit. It says that his spirit is a witness of this status. We have an incredible inheritance. We don't have to wait through lawyers and everything else for it. What that means is there's an incredible future, that there's something beyond all this, that what we experience here is not all there is. And someday it's going to be incredible. It's going to be marvelous. It's going to be beyond anything we could ever dream about. Amen. Amen. Talks about discipline. God disciplines, and the discipline is always full of truth and grace. Then family likeness. You know, we often talk, and I'll talk a little more about this. We get his character and we get his attitudes. Paul writes, let this attitude be in you, which also is Christ Jesus. And he spells out his character. Other places, he says, listen, you're going to suffer together. But understand, we all have a family. And, you know, to use an old phrase, any family has the good, the bad, and the ugly but we're still family, aren't we? And we don't get to disown each other because God doesn't disown us. What this means is we count life as a privilege. And that's hard because sometimes we just get caught up in the rights and we get caught in our way and our ideas and our thinking. And through all those assumptions, we just kind of go down a path we shouldn't go down. But let's go to the other passage I want to refer to this morning. It's Romans 8, verses 14 through 17. You'll see this on the screen. You can turn there with me if you'd like. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. There he talks about this again. If you did not receive the Spirit, for you did not receive the Spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the Spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. If children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, there's that family, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Now, here's the point I want to make this morning. In Galatians, Paul talks about the first agent. It's Christ. And Christ gives us the saddest of being a son. He was sent into our world. He died. He rose again. And that, through our belief in him, through our confession of sin, that makes us sons. We have that status. Paul here talks about the second agent. It's the spirit. It's the Holy Spirit. 
And that is sent not into the world, it's sent into our hearts. It's about experiencing being a son. And so we have the status in Christ and the Spirit helps us understand that status through experience. The Spirit helps us with this privilege of being called sons of God. St. Clair Ferguson wrote several books and one of the books he speaks about the prodigal son. And he makes a very interesting observation. He says, many of us live like the prodigal. He says, we go out, we rebel, we lose our way, and then we come home. Even though we still have the status of being a son, we come home with the mindset of a slave. Think about that. He says, the prodigal says, all I want is to be one of your slaves. And what does the father do? He brings him back in as a son, both legal status and both experience status. He invites him to the table of his house. Now, as sons, we're all invited to the table of Christ's house. You heard me say this before, but many times we choose to dumpster dive thinking this is all the best it can be. And it's just a lie of Satan. There's a story about Alexander the Great, and again, some of these stories, you don't know how true they are, but it makes a point. He says, one of his generals came to him one day and says, my daughter's getting married, and I need money. Uh, she wants this big wedding, and I don't have enough. And so Alexander the Great asked him how much you need, and he asked for an astronomical amount of money. Alexander looks at him and says, of course, go ahead. I will give you whatever you need. And the general walked away, and another general who was listening in on the conversation. We never do that, do we? <laughs> he walks up and says, why did you give him so much? Do you even have it? Here was his response. This man believes I'm a very wealthy man. And he also believes I'm very generous. He did me a great honor. And I thought, how wealthy and generous is Christ? He's wealthy and generous enough to adopt you as his son. And we honor him by accepting and living as a son. Now, going back to Sinclair's observation, he says this. To refuse an act to live like a son is not humility. We often look at the product and we think, well, wasn't he so humble? He goes, no, he wasn't humble. He goes, it was an insult to his father. Because he did not believe his father was rich and generous. He says, now part of the problem is we don't want to be indebted to anyone. We don't want to lose control, even if it's over a little aspect of our lives. We want some say, we want some control, we want some credit. Look at me, I chose to be a slave instead of living like I should. Now this whole experience of being a son, you might ask, how do I get it? Well, let me say this. You don't get it by asking for the experience. It doesn't work that way. When you live in the spirit, and we're going to talk a lot about that in the rest of Galatians, it becomes instinctive. You just kind of know it. And you can't define it. You can't explain it. You just know it. That's why in Romans, Paul says, the spirit bears witness with our spirit. And think about a small child. Think about the status of that child being a son or a daughter. They know the best they can. 
But you know what their experience is? It's one of trust. It's one of connection. You know, our children live with this expectation that they will be taken care of. They live with the expectation that they will be loved until they're taught to doubt. And sometimes as parents, we do things that teach them to doubt. Good news is that Christ will never cause us to doubt. Amen? Amen. And we get to cry out, Abba, Father. It's a very intimate phrase. It's a personal cry out. When we cry out to God, we're talking about prayer. And so we have to understand that crying out this way is just not the status of a child. It is also the experience of a child. It's the experience of intimacy. So I want to talk about three things then that become new. If we understand that we are all sons of God, as Paul's explaining it, and against, yes, daughters, yes, children, call it whatever you want, but he's making the point. If we understand both the status and experience of sonship, there's three new things that happen. Number one, we have a new freedom. We get to put on Christ. That's the phrase in Galatians. We get to be free from sin and to do a lot of good. And again, we know how that is tense in our world. But there's a whole lot we can unpack here. But let me go to Ephesians chapter 4 for a moment. Listen to what Paul says here. Ephesians 4, 17, he says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk. And that's a term for life. It's a term for everything we do. Walk as Gentiles do. So he's talking about someone outside of the kingdom of God. It's not picking on a particular race. He's just saying, these people do not know me. In the futility of their minds, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their hearts. They become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice of every kind of impurity. Now, let me stop there for a moment because when we look around at our world, when we read this passage, do you understand what it's saying? We should not be surprised at how our world thinks and lives when it thinks and lives outside of God. And this is what happens. They don't make sense. Their, their minds go dark. Their emotions go dark. There's this callousness. There's this you know, rise in violence. And we sit back and say, how could they do this? Well, this is why. Now, having said that, it's not wrong for us to desire to try and to move our world into morality that aligns with Christ. But to do that, we got to do what? Got to introduce them to Jesus Christ. You know, Romans 1, Paul again says, take God out of the picture and there are consequences. Has to do with the way we think, has to do with the way we feel, has to do with the way we live. So I, I just say that because scripture is quite clear about what's going on around us. This should be no surprise. Verse 20 says, but <laughs> that is not the way you learned Christ. You notice how I use that phrase, that you learned Christ? It's not learning in Christ, learning from Christ. It's learned Christ. Assuming that you've heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. And then he talks about putting off and putting on. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. And to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. To put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. 
Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. For we are members of one another. Be angry, don't sin. Don't let the sun go down in your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. There it talks about the generosity of how we live out. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. That's a reminder for the football game this afternoon. <laughs> but only such is good for building up that fits the occasion that may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you. Along with all malice, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Now, that's what I call a list in progress. But you notice it says we got to stop certain things and we got to start other things. We stop doing stuff out of darkness and we start doing things that we can label godly. But it says this, that every, every situation is an opportunity for influence to help people see the glory of God. So there's a new freedom. Secondly, there's a new fellowship. You know, it says that in Christ, we are all equal. There is no racial, cultural, social, gender difference. Now, does that mean there isn't any? Of course we know there's differences. We know there's different races. We know there's difference between men and women. We, we know that there's different social statuses. But what he says is this. None of it matters in terms of value and love in his family. Amen? Amen. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13. For in one spirit we are all baptized into one body, Jews, and Gre Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. You know, Paul is so repetitive. Why? Because we don't always get this. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. Therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, I, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. And then he says this, with all humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with, another, with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Whose unity is it? It's the Spirit. We're one body. This is all gift. And when he tells us that being sons, being family, being daughters, there's this new fellowship created by God, and it's maintained by God's Spirit. That's the experience of sonship. And this is important in our influence because when John prays in John 17, he prays for our unity and he says this, so that the world may believe that you sent me. And whatever that unity is, it's born of the spirit. It is that radical, it's that supernatural that the world sits up and says, you know, they shouldn't get along like that. Today we're separated by opinions and we're not allowed to have different ideas. But in God's word, that doesn't destroy us. That doesn't take us down. The tragedy is, I think in the last four to six years, we've allowed political and medical issues to divide us like the church should not have been divided. Third, uh, we have a new future. Think about this. We are heirs to the promise. That's what he says. All the promises that he gave Abraham. What this means, it means several things. That this world is not all there is, amen? amen. 
There's something beyond here that is unexplainable and unimaginable. Now, please don't misunderstand this. This does not mean that we cannot experience blessings in this life. We can and we do. A lot of it's our perspective on things. So often we miss them. This does not mean we just hang on till we see Christ. We are left here for a reason. That's why I kind of read that thing going around the internet. Our children are here for a reason. There's a cause. And we are called to live as sons and reflect Christ to the world around us. Amen? No matter what circumstance or job or how unfair or unjust, fill in the list, we can excuse ourselves from living in the Spirit and say, you know what? I quit. That's refusing to take the status of the Son and living the status of the Son. And we're called to live apart while we live in our world. But there's a whole new world that is waiting for all of eternity. And if you're like me, some days I wish it was here faster than others. But if I'm here, there's reasons. I'm going to call the worship team up. As they do, I'm going to pray. Father God, I pray that we understand this passage because it's so important. Satan gets into our heads and then we start not living like a son. And we have all our reasons, we have all our excuses, but most of them are lies of Satan. So I pray that we strike down those lies. I pray that we just look at you and come to the table, even though we feel unworthy, and sit and understand what it means to be in you and to be you. Father, I pray for all our situations. The ones we're going to face this week, we don't know what yet they're going to achieve. You have people waiting for us that you want us to witness Jesus Christ. And I pray we have enough sense to see that. Because every day we have an opportunity to bless somebody. Every day we have an opportunity to be Christ. And I just pray that none of that gets in the road. So lead us, guide us, and be with us. Because you alone are worthy, and everyone said, amen. Let's stand as we close.